0: Hey back. Hey Adam. So I guess we're not alone this week, are we? We are not. We actually have our very first uh guest host with us.
1: Wait, are we that big of a podcast now that we actually have a guest host? Like is this a thing? Can we do this now? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> So this week we actually have queer neurodivergent mental health coach, Ramsey Alexander, with us on the podcast. Hi, Ramsey. Oh, hi. Oh, I didn't know I was a guest host, ooh. The,
2: the, uh, oh God, the word just, just went away from my head. The authority, the majesty.
1: Words are hard, we know. <laughs> so, they are not was, my friends. No. <laughs> I'm a writer and they're not my friends. Yeah. <laughs> So Ramsey is a queer neurodivergent mental health coach who has worked predominantly with youth. And we thought today would be an interesting uh, to have them on regarding neurodivergence and body positivity and weight cult and diet culture and all that stuff. So yeah. that, that we want to talk about. And I had some experiences with my family in this and we've I think all, th- all three of us have had experiences in this regard. So it was interesting to get an outsider perspective.
2: Mm-hmm yeah this is something that i have been interested in for many years now after my own uh journey through an eating disorder and out the other side Um, after that whole experience i really got into um like body positivity and you know fighting fat phobia and and like just learning about how diet culture affects all of us and then trying to fight it because Diet culture leads to eating disorders and, you know, self-hatred and shame and all that bullshit that we don't want in
1: this world. Well, and I just think it's the kind of thing that, like, permeates our culture.
0: Like, it's everywhere. eh, Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Sorry. Um, My brain stopped working for a second. Um, No, it is. And I know for myself, I went through a health scare that revolved around kind of diet culture a few years ago so um i was incredibly obese i gave myself diabetes and a bunch of health concerns but they were more focused on the number on the scale than they were on my health so it was a large fight to get through that yeah for sure you know and the i find medically everything comes down to weight and the number on the scale Mm -hmm. Which is, it's terrifying to me that it doesn't seem to matter what your symptoms are, they're so focused on how high or how low the scale is. Exactly. And that's,
2: that's the medical model of looking at, at weight and health as being the same thing. But actually, there's tons and tons of research that show that that is not the case weight or your health is not necessarily linked to your weight. There are skinny people with diabetes and health problems, and there are big people who are completely fit and in way better shape than myself, for one.
1: I, I feel that because so my thing like recently what happened was is I was a little concerned because I had swollen feet in the summer so I made a doctor's appointment because you know who knows but it turned out to be like the the heat and other stuff like I wasn't drinking enough water that kind of thing but when I went to the doctor to get this checked out the first thing my family doctor who's had me since I was a child looked at me and said you've gained a lot of weight during the pandemic we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna help you fix that and make it better than before and I'm thinking to myself like. Okay, but I also want to talk about the fact that I think I might have sleep apnea, I want to get a sleep study. I also want to talk about, you know, this, that and the other thing, like, sure, you know, like, I acknowledge it's a bodies are a risk factor, just like any other risk factor in, in the human race, but I don't want to focus on this to the detriment of like anything else that could possibly be causing this. And sure enough, I've been walking more and that kind of thing. But I did that not because the doctor told me, because I actually felt kind of resentful about how that entire meeting with the doctor went. Mm-hmm. Supplemental she also said, oh, I want to put you on like weight loss pills. And that's where I said, no. Oh my God. And then I've just kind of worked on being, do, eating better myself. And I've noticed a healthy, uh, healthy difference without having to do any of that. And I just kind of felt like way to reduce me to my weight, like way, way to do that.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's weight stigma and fat phobia within the medical establishment. And it's, it's rampant and it's awful because they're, oh my God, I've just, I've heard of so many stories of people who go to the doctors for, you know, like an allergy or something. And the first thing they say is, oh, you should lose weight. Like that is not
1: addressing the issue at all. Right. It's, it's it's like, okay, you know what? Like, I have control over my own body in the same way that I could decide whether to get a tattoo or not or whether to do this or not. So if I want to change how my physical appearance in my body, that's on that's my decision, but that has nothing really to do with my health necessarily. Like not it's not certainly not the primary thing, right? Like I could be wrong.
2: No, you're completely you're completely right. Have you heard of social determinants of health?
1: I mean, I think I know where you're going with this, but the worded that way no. Experience. Yeah.
2: So the social determinants of health are that's been studied widely. You could Google it and find out tons about it. Um, but it's, you know, it's things like, um, like housing and your community and jobs, poverty, uh, gender, race, um, access to medical care. Um, all of that stuff actually has been found to make up to 70% of your overall health. Only 20% of your ability to be quote unquote healthy, and we can dissect that word in a minute too, only about 20% is like what you can actually do, like your diet, your exercise. So 70% of what's going to bring you health and wellness in this world has nothing to do with anything you are in control of. And yet, what do we focus on? We focus on you need to change your diet, you need to change your lifestyle, But really, it has been found that 70% and higher, like, of your health factors has to do with, like, your access to medical care, your, you know, how much, you know, racism you're experiencing or homophobia or, you know, well, we don't talk about that, do we? No.
1: That's, That's too hard to solve. Yeah, yeah. well, why don't we just focus on, like, the individual, right? It's kind of like, oh, no, let's not focus on the fact that uh, 70% of corporations are destroying our planet. Let's focus on, like, the fact that, you know, you as an individual didn't throw a water bottle in the recycling
0: bin.
2: Yeah, you used a plastic straw. How dare you?
0: (laughs) All the turtles will die.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, that's not to say that. We shouldn't, you know, recycle or we oh, shouldn't, absolutely. you know, drink water and move our bodies, but it shouldn't be the main focus and like victim blaming really. Of like, you know, this is all your fault.
0: Well, and do you have anything to add to that, Beck? Um, not particularly. I, I apologize because I'm just kind of taking everything in and I probably just seem like a silent little ghost in the corner. Um, but no, I absolutely agree. And I you see it a lot, especially I live in a depressed area. And a lot of people get blamed for what they can do, what they can eat, what they can afford to eat. Well, if you look at it and you go to the grocery store, you can get, you know, a 10-pound bag of, like, let's say macaroni for 99 cents. And a head of lettuce is $5. Yeah, so you see that so much in my community, especially. Um, and you go, well, we're, we're all shaming these people for being overweight and we're trying to get them out to do more and eat well. But there's no jobs here for anyone to make money to purchase healthier alternatives to what they're currently consuming.
2: And that would be part of social determinants to health, too, is like access to foods, a variety of foods. I like I hesitate I hesitate to use the word healthy. I don't like saying like yeah. choosing healthy foods or junk foods because that there's like moralistic connotations there, right? We think of health we healthy is good and junk food is bad and you're a bad person if you choose sugar and a good person if you choose a salad. But like all food is good food right? You want to have a variety. And so when we demonize certain kinds of foods, that's what diet culture is.
1: And I'm going to make a slight joke to that. Like, you know, when people say, oh, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels that I call, oh! I call oh! bullshit because a McDonald's double cheeseburger is freaking delicious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, So it's interesting you say that because like, I've literally had this conversation with people who are otherwise like really socially progressive and whatever. And you know who acknowledge you know well it's unfair to discriminate against people for things they can't choose. But the minute weight comes up, it's like yeah, but you can choose that because you can work on skinny. And it's like, um, I can choose to do everything right, and my body can still say nope, not doing the thing because nope. <laughs> yep. Know? And like, or like the other day, and it's been blowing my mind. And I know we're going through a whole inflation thing, like with, uh, with the economy and stuff. But like, it really blows my mind because I was at the grocery store the other day. And I spend like, and I'm making a conscious effort to try to, like, buy stuff that my body, like, is good for my body and my body likes, you know, not moralizing on, like, what what's good and bad, but trying to, you know, do stuff like that. And I was amazed when I got to the checkout and I was careful about shopping deals and paying, I paid $100 for groceries the other day. Ugh, yeah, it's really bad right now, for sure. So, like, how can we, like, we talk about, oh, you make good, healthy choices. Healthy choices are expensive and I'm lucky to have a job.
2: <laughs> exactly. You know I mean? Exactly. Yeah damn, I want to go back. You said something. Oh, Oh, you said you said two things that got my my mind going and I can't remember what it was right before. Oh, man. Damn. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember. It's totally gone. Uh,
1: Well, okay. Well, then on that note, one of the other things that I wanted to touch on was because part of my experience with this, and I'm sure Becca and you are both somewhere on this is um, neurodivergence plays a part in this for me, too, because like number one i'm supremely picky because of sensory stuff when it comes to food mm-hmm. so i can't just easily embrace a restrictive diet in any way be veganism calorie count anything because that my brain just doesn't do that well and 100%. I and when i tried i came here to develop a eating disorder back in the early, mid-2000s and that did not end well <laughs> so like it's not a thing that i like to do, but every time I mention these concerns, they get like dismissed as oh, you don't worry about it, you gotta eat healthy. Blah blah, blah. That, that, that's a good thing. Everyone worries a little bit about that, but once like, no, we shouldn't be worrying about that. Like, that's my brain is the kind of brain that it's like giving alcohol to an alcoholic. If I if you give me a restrictive diet, it goes like hyper focused in, oh my god, this is an amazing thing because that's what an ADHD and autistic brain does. Well,
2: actually, that if i'm hearing you right that when you you're saying that when you are restricting from something you want it even more is oh. that what i is that what i heard so that is actually totally normal that across the board of all brains um because so this is what what i have learned through my studies of like how the body reacts to starvation basically it goes into a starvation mode even when you're even when you're just mentally restricting, like, oh, I shouldn't eat that. And and it it kicks your brain into gear to want it more, because because your body is meant to keep you alive and keep those calories coming in so you can keep moving. So restriction inevitably uh, leads to binges. Because... If you don't let yourself have something when you finally have it around how can you re- you know you you literally can't resist it's not a willpower thing it's your body trying to keep you alive <laughs> Like,
0: so yeah. that was one of the greatest things that i had to teach myself when i changed my lifestyle because when i went into the doctor and they were like hey you know you're diabetic you're this you're that immediately you go into this i can't have this i can't have that i can't have the other thing And what I had to teach myself is like, absolutely, you can. You know, if you want cake, have a piece of cake. Potentially, do not eat the entire cake in one sitting. And And that was one of my big things. Yeah. And
2: for people who do eat a cake in an entire sitting, it's probably because they don't let themselves have cake that often. So then suddenly cake is there and it's like, well, when's the next time I'm going to have cake? I don't know. I'm going to eat this whole thing. Mm
1: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And yeah, I, there's.
1: Oh, go, go ahead. On. No, go ahead.
2: Well, I was just gonna say there's um, this concept called intuitive eating. Um, and I hope I know I hope I can remember the name of the authors. I think it's Evelyn Triboli and co author. Sorry, co author. Um, but intuitive eating like their their number one thing is you have to break up with this idea of diet culture. So that's that's the hardest part. Is step one is just breaking up with the idea that you can control your body through what you eat. Um, but then then the next one I think number two is allow yourself to eat everything and anything you want. And that's the scariest part for people because they're like, uh, if I bring Oreos into my house, I will eat all of them. And And their thing is, yeah, yeah, you probably will. And maybe for like the first month or two, you're going to be eating Oreos every freaking day. But at some point, your body's going to be like, okay, I'm kind of done with Oreos. Like, I I don't really need them. I'll keep them in the house, but maybe I'll have them once in a while. It's like learning to trust your body again. And that's the hardest part because we've been raised in a culture that teaches us to restrict. And that restriction makes us want it more. It makes us feel like we can't control ourselves.
1: Can I so, touch on something you said there? Yeah, I, totally. I want to touch on something there, because uh, as that relates to neurodivergence and stuff like that, mm. um, people, those of us who are neurodivergent in general, especially autistic and even ADHD and whatever, have always been taught not to trust the signals from our brain and body to begin with. So they'd yeah. be like, no, you're wrong because you're not doing it in the socially conditioned way. So you shouldn't trust your body. You shouldn't trust your instincts to begin with. When you add that into, cause that creates to- a toxic image around this, to be, this stuff. And then you add that in with the neurodivergent tendency to hyperfixate. Mm-hmm.
2: And then you add that in
1: with like, uh, you know, it just, it becomes like a toxic downward spiral.
2: A hundred percent. Yeah, and well, so do you know about, you know what interoception is?
1: That's where you're aware of your own body's- Signals. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, like hunger cues and satiety cues. Like, you know when you're full or you know when you're hungry. That is really hard for those of us with ADHD and autism. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with like, just going a whole day, like just doing things and then suddenly you're like, I'm starving, oh my God, I need to eat right now. Because you (laughs) you have not felt the like, the small little hunger cues along the way.
1: Yup. Yeah. Um, I, at one point got so hyper fixated. I think I was playing the Sims a couple years ago or something. And I was just like super into like building this thing. And then I get up cause I had dinner with my parents at like five and I get up from the computer and I'm like, Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. I should probably put something in my body at the atom bodies. were going a <laughs> hundred. Yeah.
2: A hundred percent. Well, I actually, because like, I've studied a lot about eating disorders, but I, you know what? It's so funny. Cause I, as a neurodivergent person never even thought to think about the link there I, because I had a negative experience with um, my eating disorder being, um, uh, what's the word, Di- dismissed by some people who knew me um, very well and they know that I have OCD. Uh, had it for my, have you know, diagnosed very, very early. I've always had very obsessive tendencies and when I first started talking to family members about like I think I might have an eating disorder. They were like, "No, that's just your OCD." And I was like, "Okay, well, it might be it might be part of it, but it's still a problem that needs to be addressed." But anyway, so I so preparing for this podcast, I wanted to I was like, "Well, I should look this up." Like I've never really looked into it, and I actually found there there is a lot of comorbidity between um neurodivergence and I'm talking ADHD autism OCD um and eating disorders and it it's it's actually like a really big a really big thing but nobody really addresses it in treatment like when I went to treatment anyway like there was no talk about you know it wasn't accessible for people with autism or or ADHD or you know well and I
1: think Part of that is we've normalized a certain level of disorder thinking of in our world to the point where, you know, like, like I just the other day, like I was looking out on the shelf at like protein shakes and there was like a steps to losing weight, you know, Ooh. eat everything you want, get hungry, drink one of these and ignore a meal. It's like, no, yeah, really advertise this on the side of a thing as a normal and healthy thing to no, <laughs> you know, and like, like, yeah. and I just shudder to think if someone is neurodivergent in some way or shape or form and is on a downward obsessive spiral when it comes to eating disorder and that kind of thing that kind of thing would like drive them to to the point of like developing a serious problem because i mean i remember you know in my particular case i had i gained the infamous frosh 15 when i started at laurentian back in 2006-2007 and i was like and i i I started feeling really bad about my about my body image and i and my family doesn't help with that i I love them to death but like we we have a familial problem with with body image and stuff like that that's a generational thing and so so i decided to start losing weight and everyone's like oh you look so good at him you look so good at him and inside i'm like fearing eating a chocolate bar yeah weighing myself after eating a bagel (laughs) you know what i mean like exactly low-key celebrating losing uh, forgetting to eat a meal because oh that'll just mean i lose weight that's great and you know and this is what my brain does when oh thing that i'm a thing that i'm into and therefore obsessed with combined with bad image on things and you know what i mean it's just that's not ultimately i burned myself out because ADHDers also burn ourselves out of our hyperfixations yeah in a weird way that saved me because i burned out on my eating disorder that's
2: awesome. I love that. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, mine mine was also a hyperfixation situation. Actually, it was kind of, it's it's interesting because it's I can't really tease apart the hyperfixation part of it for me and the gender part of it for me. So like I got hyperfixated on on nutritional information and I was like I couldn't stop reading, you know, books about I don't like macros and and how the body, I don't know, certain foods are toxic and bad and good, you know, it's the whole moralizing of food, right? And I got obsessed with it. And that, that's all I thought about. That's all I did. But at the same time, I was also like figuring out my gender and I was feeling weird in like a female shaped body. So there was also like a piece of it that was like, I wanted to get rid of any curves. So it was... It was, yeah, it was a weird uh combination there. But yeah, the hyperfixation and the like it became my special interest for many years. It's all I could talk about. It was all I could think about.
1: Uh I have a family member that Ramsey around that time probably would have gotten along very well with, that Ramsey now probably wouldn't get along very well. With. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I know exactly. Yeah. Um that must have been interesting too, because like you know, you're starting to realize that you're not the gender you were assigned at birth, combined with the fact that you're not happy in the body of that. So, you know, like, it must have been like a double whammy for you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And actually, like, there, there's also findings that trans people experience eating disorders at much higher rates than cis people. And well, and to me, that makes sense, too. Like, because it's, you know, trying to make your body conform to some, you know, a shape that feels good to you. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's weird because it's diff, it's a little bit different. F- like for, it's like, if you're seeking a diagnosis, it's harder to get a diagnosis if it's not about weight. So like you need to have a fixation with, uh, body weight and body size, um, and body shape to have that diagnosis of anorexia or bulimia. Um, but if it's about gender, you can't get that diagnosis, then it's then it's just dysphoria, but then you're not getting treated for the eating disorder. So I know I've digressed a little bit, but it's, it's, it's the whole thing with like getting diagnosed and seeking help is also really problematic as well. It was very hard for me to get a diagnosis because I was still in the quote unquote normal range of weight.
1: And I find that, sorry to catch up with, I find the medical Mm -hmm. stuff does that period. Like, I mean, was that oh like when i went to go pursue my adhd diagnosis which honestly was just because i suspected i had it and wanted to know for myself like i had developed ways to survive in this brain for long enough that i didn't really necessarily need medical intervention i just wanted to know for myself so i could treat myself better yeah and my doctor was like well, why do you care or why do you care you're healthy and you're and you're working well and I'm like, it's like Yes, but I'd like to know for myself because it doesn't all come down to like emergency situations. Like, you know, how do I make my life better with this knowledge? Right. But you can the medical establishment tends to be like, well, you're normal, you're within this range, you fit this. Why do you need to know?
2: Yeah. Like, you're contrib- like in the case of like your ADHD diagnosis, like, oh, you're fine, you're contributing to our capitalist society. And that fits, that means you're, you know, a contributing member and we're happy with that. So, no problem here, and yeah, you're fine. It's yeah, you're fine. and with me seeking an eating disorder diagnosis, they were like, "Oh no, you look good, you look healthy, yeah, all right, get out of here, you're fine." Like, right? Just uh, because you fit into the box that society wants you to fit into, <laughs>
1: like, or
2: seemingly fit into it.
1: Ah, it's all good. You're you'll survive. Yeah, it looked like he had something to say there. Back, I saw, I saw a frown and like a
0: furrow, like, a, oh, I have a thing. <laughs> Uh, no, that was mostly because I had to move in my chair, which means I have to put my phone down. Um, but it actually makes me think of a quote that I heard on, shockingly, TikTok the other day. And it was people looking for a diagnosis to whatever it is at the time. And they, they're they saying, why do you need this? Like, why do you need this label? And it it says, and the, the quote was something along the lines of, because it would be nice to know that I am a goose and not just an ugly duckling. Ah. And, yeah. and I like that in a sense, because I've seen that uh, not only with uh, different health issues that I've had, but also with my neurodivergencies, people saying, why do you need that label? You know, you're fine. And it's like, I, I am fine, but I'm also not. It's nice yeah. to know that I'm not just a really weird, neurotypical person or whatever it may be that I'm actually this thing. And that helps me accept and treat myself and move on.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I think that goes back to, like, just, like, how valid it is. Like, self-diagnoses are valid because you know yourself best. And if you say that you have an eating disorder, a problem with food and your weight and stuff, then you've got a fucking eating disorder. And it's the same thing with neurodivergence. If you, if you say, I'm autistic, whether or not you have that diagnosis officially, like, you know yourself.
1: Well, and honestly, like, Thank you for bringing that up, because both of you. Because when I when I was writing my book, part of me felt like a fraud, being like, "Okay, but I have a job. I have three degrees. I have this. what do I really? How, how? What right do I have to be talking about being autistic when I seem to be one of one of the good ones? I hate this. I hate that term, and i hate mm-hmm. that, but like, that's in my brain. That's where I kept coming from. Is like, what right do you have to speak out about this, Adam? Because you're okay, but at the same time, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about like." embracing an identity and like talking saying, it's okay and like broadening the understanding of what these things are beyond like the medical and clinical models of like, you know, we have to meet this exact DSM criteria, or these, you know, for, for these things, yeah. you should understand the valid lived experiences, whether it's an eating disorder or whether it's a neurodivergence, right?
2: It's really crazy actually the parallels that I didn't see until this conversation and stuff. Like just what you're talking about right there. Like when I went into eating disorder therapy, I felt like a fraud because I had a quote unquote normal body. I thought like, if you have anorexia, you have to be like a skeleton and I didn't look like that. So I felt like I shouldn't be here. I'm taking up space. Somebody else deserves this more than me. And I I learned going in there, like there's all different kinds of body sizes and shapes that have eating disorders and, and everyone belongs. Like if you're having a problem, with feeding yourself, you deserve help, and it's the same thing. If you're having a problem like dealing with like the 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 structures of society that you know demand you have to work eight hours and you have to be able to maintain concentration for this entire time and you you know all these things and you and you can't do it, then you can't. Like, then you belong. You it's justified.
1: Well, and like. It, it, the reason why, for the longest time, when I thought about that period of my life where, like, I didn't have the best relationship with food, I always kind of jokingly described it as flirted with eating disorder because I kind of thought to myself, like, I can't fully say I have an eating, I had an eating disorder because, I, I, I got in my brain at the time, I was like, I had a normal body. I didn't have a diagnosis. I wasn't scrawny and forcing myself to, to throw up like uh, like uh, like stereotypical mm-hmm. eating disorders would. So what right do I have to claim that label? I'm just gonna say I came close to it, but like burned out, you know. But like when I think when I did some quizzes online about what qualifies as disordered thinking and an eating disorder, like I think that I think the quiz was like testing various disordered thinking and that kind of thing, and. It was like, if you have two or more of these, then you should seek medical help. And I answered from a perspective of 2007, Adam, you know, when I was doing the quiz. And I could think of that like four or five. So like, it blew my mind because it was like, I guess there's, I guess there's more nuance to this and more depth to this than simply what the media and everyone says about eating disorders. And it really made me think.
2: Yeah, because in, in like the eating disorder community or whatever, we, they talk about disordered eating and eating disorders. Yeah. And there's a Venn diagram out there actually that shows like the overlap. Um, And I was just trying to Google it there, but I I can't find it. Um, But it's, it's basically like everything you think of in an eating disorder is like, is disordered eating and is part of our culture. This is part of diet culture. We're expected to, you know, count calories and, um, you know, I don't know. My my, yeah, you know, you know all the things you're expected to do, but then the eating disorder is just like, what's the DSM criteria that was invented by a bunch of white men in an office together? Sis- <laughs> like, cisgender yes, in an office, yes, exactly. Um, so I don't know. I think disordered eating is just as dangerous as an eating disorder. However, I, I should I should probably point out that eating disorders are incredibly dangerous. They're actually the uh, number two highest mortality rate of all mental health issues, and the number one is opioid addiction. Number two is eating disorders.
1: Oh, but you can just get over all of it by trying not to. Be <gasps>
2: oh, yeah, that, of course.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you tried harder? Yeah. <laughs> oh.
2: But what oh what's the, the what's the percentage i think it's like 98 percent of people who diet will eventually get an eating disorder so disordered eating is dangerous and a diet is disordered eating because it's not it's not natural you don't as a baby you know exactly what you need to eat you know when you're full you know when you're hungry it's it's Growing up in this social, like in the in the society that teaches us to ignore our hunger cues, to deny our, you know, the things our cravings. Like we learn this from like very young, with you know parents saying like, oh, you can't eat, you can't eat all that hun- the candy, or you can't
1: have, you know, ice cream before dinner. That's insane. I am an adult and I have had ice cream before dinner, and now let me tell you, it is glorious.
2: And yeah, as neurodivergent people, like, I eat. What I want, when I want, like I I do what I want. I'm gonna eat cereal (laughs) for three meals a day because sometimes that's just what I (laughs) have to do. But I mean, that is that is something that comes up a lot in the research um, about like people with um, like ADHD, autism, OCD, with eating disorders. Is it is very strongly linked to sensory issues. Like, oh, I don't know if you've heard of ARFID. ARFID is another kind of eating disorder. Um, what does it stand for again? Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And it has nothing to do with weight or body shape. It's just like textures of food and flavor like, fear, like fears of food. And I have a little bit, I have that as well. i not an official diagnosis because I did also like have that whole like changing my body thing. But today I don't have that like desire to lose weight and stuff. But I have a lot of sensory issues around food and a lot of fears, like I'm afraid certain things are going to make me sick. And so sometimes, yeah, I do like cereal will be my quote unquote safe food for a while until like I can get past it. And it's hard as a <laughs> as a neurospicy human to eat food
1: sometimes. Oh my
0: god. I mean, Beck,
1: do you have anything to add to that, or am I good to tell a story?
0: I was just gonna say that my brother actually um, contends with ARFId quite a bit. Um, it's the textural issues for him, and because when he was younger, nobody ever really allowed for him to try anything new, if that makes sense. So it was just, okay, you're comfortable eating hot dogs and fries? that's what you eat instead of, you know, maybe try a bite, like as a child. So as he's gotten older now, he really, really struggles with attempting new foods, new textures, any of that. And it causes quite a bit of worry in the family because like he nourishes himself, he's doing fine. But that diet culture, that very much like, well, you don't eat vegetables, so you're going to get scurvy is kind of where it goes. Right. So you know, at this point, I might be the only one in the family that's like, just leave him alone. Just let him eat what he's going to eat. He's happy. He has his safe foods. Leave him alone. Yeah. Yup.
2: Yeah. And there's, way to, there's ways to get, like, the vitamins and minerals that you need. That doesn't include having to eat a food that is really um aversive to you. Well... And
1: yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, so... Uh, when I was a kid, one of the biggest sources of arguing at my house was dinner time. Hmm. Because, you know, being a neurodivergent kid, but growing up in the 90s, when knowledge of neurodiversity was kind of in its infancy, and the the pervasive mentality was, you know, just be strict and make them do the thing. (laughs) You know, so... We had, my parents and I had so many fights over dinner because like, you're going to sit here until you finish the entire plate. But if it was the thing that just set off my, um, my um like I didn't have the words to describe it as a kid, but if I had, but going, looking back as an adult, it was something that set off my sensory issues or smelled gross or tasted gross. Or like, I have this memory of this like uh tomato tuna pasta type thing oh. that was served at one point, And it just made me want to gag. I didn't have the words to describe that this made me want to gag. So we sat there until like I want to say eight at night arguing about this and it's ruined all of our evenings because of the, you know and to this day i will not eat that pasta <laughs> no, yeah no, no no because yeah and i i just think like if we had a kind of culture where okay you know put something on a kid's plate and try it you, you can try it if you want to try it but no pressure either way a lot of times kids will want to try the thing because they're not being like pushed and shoved and conformed and forced and whatever. But like, it's when we create that idea of this is good. This is bad. There are poor starving kids in Africa. So how dare you not want to eat this food? You know, that that guilt trip regime that like my dad was in the
2: Oh, I got it too. Yep.
1: You know, I just, you made me think of that.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard, it's a very nuanced conversation too, because it's, I mean, ideally, right. You want to be able to give your kids like, a selection of different things and, and find out what they like and, and let them like intuitively eat, like listen to their body. What does their body want? You know, yeah. but it can be really hard if you don't have, you know, the financial ability to do that. A lot of people, you know, can, can only afford, you know, tuna and craft dinner, mix it together. That's what you're eating, you know, and if you don't like it, that's, that's tough. Right. And that, that sucks. But it, I think that is, I think that's part of like food trauma that a lot of us experience. Um, I, I—that's how I define it anyway because I feel like I was traumatized by food and and eating experiences as a kid, much like how you are describing
1: Adam. Yeah, and I mean I know I've, we Beck and I've had these conversations many times about our like about like t- poor traumatic experiences around food and other stuff growing up because like. Growing up neurodivergent and not necessarily either not knowing you are a neurodivergent or vaguely knowing it, but no one's talking about it. So you're not really sure how this makes you different. You just know that this word exists, you know. Yeah. And so, and you're, so you're still basically being raised as a neurotypical, but you're not. Exactly. <laughs> it creates so much trauma. Yeah. And yeah, it
2: is traumatizing. It wouldn't be considered trauma if if people knew what was going on and it was explained to you and like, you know, it was supportive. But the reason it's drama is because you don't know what the heck's going on and, and you think you're there's something wrong with you. And like you're being a, broken forced- a
1: typical person. Oh, no. Yeah, exactly. Also, I just want to say as an aside, don't ever worry about tangent tangenting off topic. You're God, we do this all the time. And <laughs> sometimes our episodes start with one topic and end up on something completely different. And it's just a great journey. <laughs> this is
2: good. This is how my conversations usually go. All just all over the place. And an hour later we come back to the original topic.
0: Yeah, we go <laughs> back to the original topic? Right? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah. That happens.
2: laughs> Listen, sometimes I take notes. I have to write down like, okay, we we're talking about that.
1: <laughs> come back. Like the one episode where we tried to be completely on the cuff about something was our worst rated episode ever. Oh really? Yes, people like hearing us just ramble and rant about things
2: yeah rambling and ranting is fun yeah and
1: interesting did you have anything to add back nope okay at the moment no (laughs) did you have anything rins that you wanted to add to this topic
2: i guess i would just say like for anyone out there who is wondering like do i have an eating disorder you know like that's that's a that's that's a scary thought for sure, right? And and like me and Adam were talking about earlier, sometimes it doesn't feel you feel like a fraud, and you feel like mm, maybe it's not bad enough, maybe I'm not sick enough. But I would say you know whatever your neurotype is, if you are planning meals and worrying about what you're putting in your body or not putting in your body, and like thinking about food and um, you know like if your world is revolving around food and eating so much that it's like more than half of your day, like talk to somebody about it. Cause that like, that's not good. <laughs> you know, like there's so many wonderful things in this world, you know, to, to be interested in and hyperfixate on, but food <laughs> should not be one of them. <laughs> Unless you're like a chef. Like that's cool. Like if you're you want you want to prepare beautiful meals and stuff. But if you're I, worried I
1: about I seriously want someone to make me beautiful meals. Like seriously. <laughs> yeah. Like
2: food should be if anything a celebration. It should be an exciting thing. It should it should not be this stress inducing like ugh, horrible thing that is also related to your body. So like I guess I should sp- separate it because like there's the worry about food and stuff but also if you're like deeply concerned about your body and your weight and your shape that so much so that it's taking up a lot of your brain space like that that's valid it doesn't matter like you don't have to reach a certain threshold or fit a dsm criteria for it to be valid if you're having those thoughts like i highly recommend like seeking out somebody to talk to about it
1: totally Absolutely. Thank- so thank you so much for being on our podcast this week.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. This oh, has been fun.
1: It has. So <laughs> uh, is there anywhere that like, if someone's looking to find you on the internet, where should they look? Oh,
2: God, I suck at social media. Um, <laughs> I do have a Facebook page um, and it's called... Uh... <laughs> I can't even remember because I never go to it. Outside the box support services. I know it's a mouthful. Um, the easiest way to get a hold of me is just by email me, emailing me, um, which is Ramsey with an A Y dot G dot Alexander at Gmail dot com. I'm sure you can put that
1: in the show notes. Definitely. It's been a pleasure to have having you right back.
2: It really has. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again
1: for having me. Special thanks goes to Paul Unger, who designed the rainbow infinity symbol and brain component of our logo, and we love it very much. Thanks, Paul. The Neurodivergent Polyamorous was created and produced by Adam Mardero and Becca Kelterborn. Copyright 2022.